When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Today's guest episode is by Cameron Zinsau. Cameron is a doctoral candidate in history at Mississippi State University. His dissertation occupied the civilian experience in Montelimar, 1939-1945, received the Alan R. Millet Dissertation Research Fellowship in 2017 from the Society for Military History. Today's episode is on the Phony War, so named because after Germany invaded Poland, Britain and France geared up for war, but no major engagements occurred for over eight months. Cameron argues that the Phony War actually changed France quite a lot, as France implemented a series of policies for total war. These policies, which gave the army power to seize and control the country's resources, had a huge impact on France, as did the wartime mobilization. Even before the Germans invaded, France felt like a nation under siege due to the reorganization of society. Thus, there was a lot more action in the phony war than its name might suggest. With that, I'll leave it to Cameron. Hello! Today I'm going to talk about France during the interwar period from 1919 to 1939 and the Phony War, which lasted from September 1939 until May 1940. The Phony War's name comes from the lack of perceived military activity between Germany and the Allies as the two sides stared at one another for several months. In fact, if one looks away from the direct military action and looks at the interior of France, there is a flurry of military activity. Not only that, but emphasizing the military aspects of the phony war and looking at how it impacted civilians illuminates a lot about French military policy and how it intersected with civilian life. This matters because we tend to think of the social changes that occurred in France as happening mostly during Germany's occupation of the country from 1940 to 1944. While some of the most drastic changes in French society occurred during this time, the stories we associate with the German occupation billeting, the exploitation of material resources, the lack of food, and the like, all began under French directives during the Phony War and were in fact a part of French policy. Instead, I adopt a more nuanced approach following historians like Jonathan Finby, who argue that France during the Revolution is a duality between pioneering progressive legislation and its more conservative legacies of the monarchy and its connections to the church. Ultimately, we cannot understand the extent of civilian conditions in France during the occupation unless we look at the precursor that enabled the German occupation in the first place, the laws, conditions, rules, and policies that reigned over the last days of the Third Republic. When Germany came, they largely kept the same regulations concerning requisitions that the French had implemented during the interwar era. I illustrate the plight of civilians during the Phony War by looking at some instances of soldier-civilian interactions in Montelimar the city I am studying for my dissertation. Let's get on with the show. 
To understand how France appeared to be so passive during the Thony War, and how much it required of civilians, we must first look at the end of World War I and the severe human cost of the conflict. World War I caused great suffering in France. France suffered severe human and economic damage during the war. The human losses included 1.3 million Frenchmen killed, or 10.5% of the available Frenchmen in the country. This is compared to 9.8% of German men killed and 5.1% for Great Britain. In addition, 1.1 million veteran men were severely wounded and often incapacitated. Many hundreds of thousands of civilians, 450,000 in fact, died in the Spanish flu, which struck just as the war was ending. The population was further weakened by missing birth, which amounted to about 1.4 million lost babies while menfolk were at war. In monetary terms, France lost about 55 billion francs, or 15 months worth of national income that could never be restored. In addition, the German occupation of northeastern France during the war meant that 840,000 head of cattle, 400,000 horses, 900,000 sheep, and 330,000 hogs were all removed from the French livestock. France then faced the problem of what to do in the context of the next war. The interwar era was then marked by a period of planning at the national levels. Convinced that a more effective national mobilization was key to success in a future war against Germany, French leaders began as early as 1920 to formulate a national defense law, a blueprint for total war. Unlike past military laws, which addressed the problem of national defense by regulating the size, composition, and the equipment of the army and of the navy, the Loi sur l'Organisation de la Nation pour le Temps de Guerre would pull all of the national resources at the command of the nation. Its particular objectives were to specify the wartime powers of the French government and to codify its relationship with the military commanders, to ensure the mobilization of human and material resources, and to allocate responsibility for different elements of the national defense effort among civilian and military agencies. The first bill, which was introduced in 1927, called for a national mobilization or organization law that came from the Army Chief of Staff, Edmond Buat. The French Parliament put forth a bill that would make all French citizens responsible for the defense of the country. Three objections to this legislation emerged. One, that the conscription of women was wrong in principle. Two, that conscription might serve the government as a means against organized labor, and that by diluting the distinction between soldiers and civilians, conscription might deprive the latter of the protections granted non-combatants under international law. If the conscription of women touched French souls, seizure of private property was scarcely a less heartfelt issue. And there was a debate marked by violent re rhetoric and reluctance to discuss unpalatable measures. The question was whether the government should acquire the assets needed for war by negotiation or accord amiable between the state and the property owner or by requisition through government fiat. The French committee tasked with this study rejected requisition as likely to require expensive indemnities and to prove harmful to economic efficiency. In the opinion of the commission, quote, personal interest is one of the important motors of economic activity. 
nothing spurred production better than profit, and the trick was to find a level of profit that stimulated production without arousing scandal. In spite of the revulsion against war profiteers, the commission's reports and its text reflected a belief in the efficacy of financial incentives and the assertion that the government could acquire resources primarily by agreement. As one senator noted during discussions, quote, one must allow industry and agriculture their customary patterns of work, and those include making money. Agreeing that normal, though not scandalous levels of profit were a necessary stimulus for economic production, the Senate committee altered the chamber's text to discourage the requisition of private property and to reward with prime those proprietors who had negotiated accords amiable with the government. Primes were the exact benefits specifically rejected by the chamber. This created an impasse between those who believed that the government could requisition without consideration for businesses and the businesses themselves who believed that they should be able to make a profit during this time. As a result of the disagreements, this bill died off and the decline in the discussion of the National Mobilization Bill occurred in the context of other developments during the 1930s. In comparison to other issues like the Depression, the defense of the Franc, social conflict in a depressed economy, France's declining position in an increasingly technological world economy, and domestic political strife as symbolized in the bloody riots of 6 February 1934 meant that a disarmed Germany did not seem terribly important. However, in light of Germany's aggressive posturing and maneuvers throughout the 1930s, the French government came to consensus in the latter half of the decade. This was represented on the law of 11 July 1938, or the Loi sur l'Organisation de la Nation pour le Temps de Guerre, and it called upon the government to make peacetime preparations for the mobilization of the population and the resources of France to meet the exigencies of war. It delineated the responsibilities of the various civil and military authorities and imposed a national service obligation upon all male residents of France over 18 years old. The state was empowered to negotiate with private citizens for wartime use of property, and resources not secured by peacetime negotiation were subject to requisition with the payment of an indemnity that was fixed. The specific military aspects of national security planning, including the employment of armed forces, the creation and execution of armament programs, and the industrial mobilization, were the responsibility of the Comité Permanent de la Défense Nationale. At the outbreak of hostilities, these military concerns shifted to a new Comité de Guerre, chaired by the President of the Republic. Finally, a substantial portion of the law, eight of the 68 articles, dealt with measures to protect the population of France from aerial bombardment. This cautious set of arrangements was little to show for almost two decades of work. Wartime and peacetime authority remained as separate as the three armed services. Those parts of the law that the government agencies did not like were simply ignored. In January 1939, for example, the Minister of Commerce promulgated a public regulation promising compensation to property owners for the wartime use of their property that was strictly incompatible with the law of 11 July 1938. One minister's exchange to another argued that the state could not refuse to offer profit unless it was willing to guarantee loss. 
If it protected against loss, however, companies would have no incentive to make an effort, and their failures would drain the treasury. So this shows some of the inherent contradictions apparent in the law of 11 July 1938, and how the government would struggle to maintain and guarantee the profits of businesses while also securing national defense. Indeed, some argued that the law itself thwarted national defense. For example, some armaments orders had not been placed by the services in case of difficulty of predicting the elusive just return on capital allowed by the law. In other cases, the armed services were unable to make contracts attractive enough to get the desired results for fear of offering illegal rates of profit. One individual, Paul Boncourt, believed that the law's strict ban on war profits deterred businessmen from investing in plants likely to be requisitioned. The framers of the law had intended that patriotism and the prospect of government contracts alike would steer industry towards military production, but such stimuli promised results only to a government willing to actively employ them. In any event, Small firms proved unwilling to accept government contracts at the rate of profit allowed by the law, and the French government proved equally unwilling to exploit its statutory authority to requisition factories. The weakness of the law of 11 July 1938 can be seen from the fact that many important national defense measures were taken without invoking it. For example, the most serious interwar challenge to private property, the nationalization of defense plants under the law of 11 August 1936, occurred while the National Mobilization Law was still mired in the legislation prog. For example, the most serious interwar challenge to private property, the nationalization of defense plants under the law of 11 August 1936, occurred while the National Mobilization Law was still mired in the legislation process. Thus, on the individual level, much energy was shifted from preparing for war to seeking ways to be excused from it. We see this in civilians as well. In Montelimar, the Faitel family had one of their own, René, called up during mobilization. Through a series of letters from the family to René, they spoke of the possibilities of getting him on leave to come home and work on the family farm, as there were conditions in the Mobilization Act that allowed for individuals who were in occupations deemed vital to national interest, they could be excused to go home and work. There were other problems with French preparations for national defense. The army was woefully unprepared for a modern war. There was a lack of gasoline that was a perpetual hindrance to military maneuvers in the 1930s. In addition, in the 1930s, the French army only possessed about 30,000 trucks. And in the event of war, they would need 300,000 more, as well as cars, tractors, and motorcycles from civilian sources. And these would come through requisition. Although this was necessary for an army that could neither purchase nor maintain the huge number of vehicles required for war, the system based on wartime requisition was unsustainable for peacetime activities. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. 
The reliance on requisition vehicles created problems that went beyond their unavailability for peacetime planning, where the civilian economy provided few reasonable alternatives for specialized military vehicles, like communications trucks. Moreover, civilian firms sometimes protected their more valuable transportation assets by purchasing second-hand vehicles solely to be foisted off onto the army, a practice that may help explain why 40,000 vehicles required repair within a few months of requisition. After the war began, soldiers who might have been training or building fortifications received regular leave, or if leave was not granted to them, sometimes they would leave anyways. Materially, the French army was underprepared for war. However, the French soldier was properly trained, and as good a fighting soldier as anyone else at the beginning of World War II. During the phony war, the French army was afflicted with the tyranny of the mundane. So far, we have covered how the French government believed that the next war would be unfolded on a national level, and we've also looked at some of the ways in which French soldier life unfolded during the phony war. Now we're going to look at French military policy and address how generals believed that the nation should best be protected in the event of war. The Supreme War Council was revived in January 1920. By 1922, two thoughts of school emerged on how to best protect France in the case of another war. One was led by General Edmond Buat that advocated the building of continuous fortifications along the frontier for relatively static defense. This was supported by Marshal Ferdinand Foch and Marshal Philippe Pétain. They wanted fortified regions to be built as centers of resistance for offensive action. Armies would maneuver around centers until the most favorable time and conditions for attack. By the end of 1922, the majority opinion in the Supreme War Council favored a system that could be used both offensively and defensively. This contrasted with other individuals like Charles de Gaulle, who favored investment into aircraft and armor and believed that the next war would be a mobile one, which would require armies moving across vast distances in a quick manner, completely opposite to the kinds of warfare witnessed in World War I in trench warfare. As the proponents of static defenses won out, the next issue became how to best pursue this policy. These lines of fortifications would occur along the French and German border. They would be named after the French Minister of War, André Maginot, who served in the position from 1928 to 1932. The requirements for the fortifications were natural cover, sites for nearby observation posts, a maximum arc of fire, ground suitable for anti-tank obstacles, and infantry positions and ground on which paved roads could be built to eliminate wheel marks. In addition, a complex system of interlocking fortifications would be constructed that would allow for supporting fire. In addition, there had to be gaps in between such fortifications to allow units to maneuver within them. Other areas on the frontier, like the Ardennes, were considered easily defensible because of their thick wooded nature. The Supreme War Council believed that wooded hills could be blocked easily with felled trees, minefields, and roadblocks. French policy in the north along the border with Belgium was more complicated. France, Belgium, and the Netherlands had engaged in a series of negotiations in the aftermath of World War I that would provide for mutual defense in the case of war against Germany. However, Belgium and the Netherlands were also cognizant of maintaining their national sovereignty. This meant 
that in the declaration of war, the French army could not march onto Belgian soil without first being invited by the Belgian government. The kinds of defense plans that emerged then throughout the 1930s was complicated and required precise timing. By late 1939, after the war had already started and the phony war was in full swing, the Belgians had improved their defenses along the Albert Canal and increased the readiness of their army. The Supreme French commander, Maurice Gamelin, and his generals began to consider the possibility of advancing further into Belgium than they had originally agreed with with Belgium. By November, the Supreme War Council decided that a defense along what was known as the Dial Line was feasible. Despite the doubts of some, like General Alphonse Georges, commander of the Northeastern Front, Georges doubted that the French army could reach the Dial Line in time before the Germans. The French, for their part, had been entirely lukewarm about an advance into Belgium, but Maurice Gamelin had talked them into it, and on 9 November, the Allies adopted what was known as the Dial Plan. What would happen is that after a German incursion into the Netherlands or Belgium, the Belgian government would then welcome and invite the French army onto its soil. This benefited France because they did not wish a repeat of World War I, they wanted to keep the war as far away from French soil as possible. The Dial Plan could only begin once Germany began its offensive maneuvers. It required precise timing on the part of the Belgians. Any miscommunications or delays in getting the French army into Belgium meant that precious time would be lost when needing to confront a German offensive. So it's not that the Allies didn't have a plan to advance or even to engage in offensive operations. Indeed, the best portions of the French army were placed along the border with Belgium so that they could quickly advance and engage the Germans. However, the adoption of the Dial Plans ceded the initiative to the Germans. This was partly based on the French obsession with preserving French life, as so many French men had been killed during the horrendous years of 1914 to 1918. So now that we understand the, some of the ways in which the French army was prepared through its war plans and unprepared, through lack of material resources and the need to requisition supplies from civilians and businesses, how did this affect civilians? What was the effect on them? Well, it depends on where you are in France. For those, for civilians living in Alsace-Lorraine, the region of France recently won back by France in the aftermath of World War I, this meant leaving your home. French national policy dictated that in the event of war, Civilians living in Alsace-Lorraine and in other regions close to the border with Germany would be evacuated from the front and placed in different communes around France. This would make room for troop movements, limit exposure to enemy fire, and avoid occupation. These preemptive evacuations would continue from the beginning of the war, and they would continue throughout 1943, and we would see this again happening in 1944 and during liberation. For civilians not evacuated, the troubles of war manifested themselves in other ways. Requisitions, shortages, and billeting were rampant throughout the war. Let's look at Montélimar as an example. Far from being aware of the provisions of the Law of 11 July 1938, which outlined how the nation would go to war and how things would unfold once war began, Montélimar adopted its own local practices. They would use census data to identify businesses, shops, farms, stables, and homes suitable for the quartering of soldiers and animals. With this list in hand, the officer from a unit who needed to stay in the city 
would then inform the commander of the barracks, Commandant de Arms in Montelimar, Captain Piolet. Piolet, the mayor, Edouard Tardieu, and the commander of this unit would then come together and find a place suitable enough for the unit to stay. The military could utilize public buildings like theaters and stadiums for the storage of equipment, weapons, and vehicles, and men. Several incidents illustrate the problems of mobilization and the considerable economic difficulties that many civilians and businesses of Montelimar faced. At the outbreak of war, the French army mobilized 5 million individuals. By the time of the Battle of France, over 2 million soldiers were on the border between France, Germany, Belgium, and Luxembourg. This meant that a huge number of men and material would have to travel through the metropole up to northeastern France. When this happened, soldiers marching on their way to the front would occasionally have to stay in these towns. And this is where issues arose between civilians and the military. For example, soldiers of the 3rd Battalion of the 146th Infantry Regiment stayed at St. Agnes School in Montelimar. But the school soon proved insufficient for their needs. Members from the unit looked for a building they could fashion into an office, a hospital, and living quarters. After, quote, multiple unsuccessful searches in many locations, the unit identified a knitting factory called Doran Sons, 600 meters away from the school on the east side of Montelimar, owned by Mr. Born. The unit informed Born that his building was, quote, the only one available that met all the required conditions for use. They informed Bourne that he had 48 hours to vacate the premises. The unit moved into this location even though the company held the building in reserve so that they could transfer their machines from one location to another in Montelimar in order to make clothes for the military. Soldiers belonging to the 482nd first element arrived in Montelimar on 7 September when 40 soldiers settled on the property of Richard Rowe, east of downtown Montelimar. From the beginning of September through mid-November, 626 soldiers and 35 horses arrived in Montelimar from this unit, most of them belonging to the unit's 3rd Battalion. The soldiers began departing on 18 November and had entirely vacated the city by 23 November. Soldiers in total stayed at about a dozen different locations. After their departure, complaints flooded into the mayor's office asking for indemnities to be paid from the army to these individuals for damages caused. For example, Mrs. Vieuve Nicolas, owner of Chateau de Milan, tallied an extensive list of damages to her building. Soldiers broke 20 windows, two window doors, destroyed a 30 meter by 15 meter mural, four locks, and either broke or stole 20 electric lamps around the premises. Damages amounted to more than 2,300 francs. From 25 October to 22 November, soldiers designated as Syrian reinforcements billeted in Montelimar in the southern side of the city. They caused extensive damages as well. For example, Mr. Diodo, a representative of the city's equestrian society, placed a claim to the mayor, Edouard Tardieu. Didio had went to the officer in command of the Syrian reinforcements to ask that they had restore everything into the condition in which they found them. However, Diodo had noticed that some equipment belonging to the equestrian society had disappeared. He asked the officer in charge what he planned to do about the disappearance of the materials. The officer dismissed Diodo and said that he intended to have his unit leave on time, and that he didn't have time to answer such inquiries. Diodo noted that some 600 meters of canvas, 400 meters of rope, 
and numerous small tools were missing from the ground. Tardieu wrote to the military liaison officer, emphasizing the seriousness of offense caused by the officer. This occurred in dozens more instances throughout Montsalimar and throughout the entire country. Indeed, we see the strain of soldiers staying in Montsalimar at the turn of the new year. In January 1940, Tardieu wrote to the military liaison officer, informing him that, quote, I'm having great difficulty in housing the high number of officers and non-commissioned officers who have been passing through the city since mobilization. I've come to ask you as a favor to me if you could keep all NCOs on military premises. The liaison officer did not respond. There was a military barracks in Montelimar, just north of downtown. However, the barracks had been utilized for a variety of reasons. Some of these included housing Spanish refugees and French refugees as they left their homes. So while these brief examples only look in Montsalimar, we see at the regional level in prefect reports that there are dozens of claims that civilians make as a result of mobilization. The historiography of France during World War II focuses on the exploitation of France by Germany. However, we need to look at the ways in which some of these exploitations were made possible through official French policy. French policy turned cities into places of requisition and billeting during mobilization and made practically all civilian possessions available for confiscation. Transient soldiers made accountability difficult, and the constant influx of soldiers exacerbated issues over time. The large movement of French soldiers through the country created nationwide problems similar to those of Montelimar, and civilian claims to damages and concerns quickly became backlogged as administrators struggled to keep up with all the reports. The apparatus for housing soldiers in Montelimar would make the later entrance of German and Italian soldiers proceed more smoothly, as civilians already had the experience of housing soldiers on their property, forfeiting their possessions and interacting with soldiers whom they did not know. This would make accommodation or the necessary balancing of one's own life with that of the occupier easier to digest, as French civilians would already have had experience interacting with soldiers there on a temporary basis who they were not familiar with. In summation, looking at the phony war, this means we cannot understand the German occupation of France unless we first look to the mobilization of the French army during the phony war and French policy that preceded it and the ways in which civilians had to be accountable to their presence and accommodate them. That's it for me today. I wanted to take this opportunity to thank the French History Podcast for allowing me to come on air and to talk a bit about my research and some of the broader context that faced France as they prepared and encountered World War II. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.